and we are live welcome to beyond the fundamentals in this video we're going to talk about mammon church mammon church based on matthew chapter 6 verse 24 now if uh if you like the content that you get here get here we highly encourage you to support the channel the details to do so are in the description below this video also today's slideshow is already available on Etsy. If you want this slideshow, you can get it on Etsy right now. The details for that are also in the description below this video. Now, this video is is very important. It's going to be very pivotal. It's going to be pivotal on this channel because from here out, we're going to refer to things that we cover in this video, uh, such as the term Mammon Church. What does that mean? And there be, may be some neologisms like that. And we're going to, this is going to be a pivotal point. Also, if you are out there in Beyond the Fundamentals Nation, wherever you are, and you want a church that you are involved with to become more like what you think you see in the New Testament, this is going to be pivotal for you as well. This can be pivotal, pivotal for the direction of the church and how it should go. And how it can move away from the types of churchianity that do more traumatizing to people than they do help them become the Christ-like version of themselves that they possibly can become. All right. So we are. So people ask me all the time, "What you know? Can you tell me where a good church is in my area?" I don't. I don't think I can because most of them are this mammon church kind of thing. Now on this channel, last few Wednesday nights that we've been together, we were talking about religious trauma, okay? And this is one of the things that have that catalyzed me to try to capture everything I'm going to tell you today into one video because I think it's important to cover this before we move forward so that we know what we're dealing with so that we can see the kinds of religion, the kinds, the versions of Christianity that create a traumatized individual. Bear in mind, um, a lot of people are traumatized and they don't know they are. They're just reacting the way they think they should. But what they don't understand is that their threat perception and their understanding of social environments has been thrown off kilter by what they've been exposed to. So what we want to do is we want to have a, an ecology of practices, of phenomenological practices, starting with, starting with your five senses, that can help a person grow and mature into the version of themselves that they want to become. And the problem with a lot of versions of Christianity is that the paradigm, instead of getting you in touch with reality, it insulates you from reality. And when you are insulated from reality, you have less meaning in your life. Somebody was just texting me earlier, somebody that you probably know if you watch this channel, and they're involved with a company that deals with tow trucks. And they said that there's been a 60% uptick in fatal accidents in their state. Um, a lot of reckless driving coupled with suicide rates, um, anxiety and depression increasing in schools, and of course the recent school shootings, and this is you know a bunch of terrible things. All of it screams meaning crisis. And these are uh, Christians. What are Christians doing about this? What are Christians doing about this? And my contention is that Christians aren't doing anything about this because we've been, we've been duped into accepting a bill of goods that makes us feel more moral and righteous while also making us ineffective. 
And we don't want that. We want to be effective, um, irrespective of how moral or righteous we feel. Some passages I want to talk about today. Um, I'm not going to talk about these a whole lot, but I want to show you, because for the sake of time, we're going to, I'm going to show you my thought process has been affected by lots of passages like these. The Ephesians 4.16 edification model comes from Ephesians 4.13 through 16, where everybody is working together to do the edification. Um, in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. In 1 John 2.27, the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in, ye, in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and his truth and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. 1 John 3.9, Diotrephes loved to have the preeminence among the people and didn't receive the apostles. Um, John and his entourage. 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, and also all things edify not. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Above all these, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word, the Logos, was with God, and the Word was God. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the high calling uh, of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, Be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. What we noted many times on this channel is that there you, you never find a place where Paul is leaving behind a statement of faith or a creed or a set of beliefs that people are to follow. It's always about being a follower of the way, a follower of examples. Uh, there, your conversation is in heaven. There's a, there's a flow. There's a modality. There's something like that that's going on. Now, we use this word mammon. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. What is mammon? Mammon was a false god of covetousness in ancient times. Now, today, uh, the term is often used for situations that are ethically sketchy, where artificial scarcity is manipulated for the relative benefit and profit of a select few. It also commonly cohabitates with moral filth. All right, And I think what we have today is a situation where the professing church is a mammon church. It is not a church like you would find in the New Testament. <clears throat> and we're going to explore into that. I find things... Um, <laughs> Uh, th today there was a video on another channel, and I'm not criticizing this, but some the ch the video was provisionism rightly represented. And what you're going to see is that when you're in this mode of thought, you're in the same mode of thought as the Calvinist. And to move from Calvinism to provisionism is a lateral move. It is not a vertical move. What we want to do is make a vertical move. Somebody in our chat one time said Calvinism is the most thorough, well-thought-out system of theology in Christian history. We're going to see today that that is the absolute opposite of the case. It is the most, or an example, of the most disorienting kind of thing that can happen in Christianity. Okay? <clears throat> Somebody said, the creeds separate us from pagans, 
the solas separate us, the five solas, you know, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, glory to God alone. Solas separate us from Judaizers, and the tulip separates us from the synergists. And of course, I made a little snarky remark, and they all three separate you from God. <laughs> and that's what people don't understand, is that when you latch onto these things and identify yourself with them, they do you more harm than good. All right. Let's see if anybody's in the chat right now. We got a few people in the chat. Welcome everybody. Welcome everybody to the chat. It's good to see you here. If we have some time later, we'll go through some of the comments. <clears throat> Thanks for the uh, the good vibes, great intro comment, Roberta. Now, this may seem intimidating at first when I show you this chart, but we're going to go through it one thing at a time, and then you're going to see why I have populated this thing this way. I've been working on this for a while now, and I've sent Nick several different iterations of this, uh, and I was adding to it just today. And I want to remind you that this whole slideshow that you're going to see today, you can get it on Etsy right now, and... Uh, you can do whatever you want to with it. Present it in your church, use it for study, use it in your home Bible study, use it to make videos against me, whatever you want to do. You can use it on Etsy right now. So what we want to do is we want to start with a very simple question. What is your orientation and objective? So I'm trying to be a Christian and I approach the Bible to do what? To do what exactly? What am I trying to do? Okay. And there are a couple of options from there. And that that question right up front is going to change everything. Think of if you were firing a rifle and you're 100 meters away from your target. If you move your rifle just a little bit, you know, just a, just a like, you know, a millimeter, that's like 10 inches on your target. It's a, it's a long way on your target, okay? So getting your aim squared away up front is very, very important. And the problem with modern Christianity is that the orientation is all wrong. What are we aiming for? There are a couple of things you could aim for. You could, and, and this could be presented, you could say that, you could criticize what I'm talking about today and call this a false dichotomy. I don't think it is, but you could do that. And I understand that. And, and maybe the, what we're doing today is imperfect and could be improved upon, and absolutely. So rule omega on all the stuff you're going to hear today. So what you could do is, uh, a good thing to do at the top here is you could transform to do, be, and become a better future version of yourself. Or a better version of yourself in the future, however you want to word it. And you agapically, that's a fancy 50 cent word for love, okay? That the Bible word for love is agape, the, the godly love, right? Yes, I've seen the Greek game. Um, and agapically aid in the same for others. Now, charity edifieth, right? Knowledge puffeth up. So when you see agape, agapically, agapic, those words, think of charity, think of love, because that's where, when, it, when you see the word charity in a King James Bible, it comes from the word agape. All right? So we want to have the charity of 1 Corinthians 13, of Colossians chapter 3, which is one of the passages we looked at here, Colossians 3.14, above all these things, just gave you a whole bunch of things, above all these things, put on charity, above all the list of rules and regulations. Now in Ephesians 5, you have a similar thing, but instead of ending with it, he starts in Ephesians 5, chapter, verse 1 or 2, the love, the love. He starts with love, and then he starts to expound on it, tell you what it is and isn't, okay? But the important thing is the charity, is the love. Above, and, and in Colossians, it is above. It is above all the things he just got through telling you. Above all these things, put on charity. So if you're, 
If you're thinking of values and what should be valued more than something else, charity is the thing, okay? Um, even 1 Corinthians 13, there's faith, hope, and love, but the best one is charity. He's very, very, very clear about that. So above all these things, put on charity. Now we're going to call this Logos Religio, and it may look like that I have misspelled the word religion, but I put the word religio there on purpose, and if we later call this religion, that's fine as long as we understand what we're talking about. But religio, okay, religieri, ligieri, uh, if you go to the Latin, it is to re, again, bind something. And the idea of religio is you came from somewhere, whatever, whatever real reality is whatever base reality is you came from there and religio is you rebinding to that and you could also the binding it could be your your binding with other people in the pursuit of this uh in the co-pursuit of this transformation for yourself and others so we're going to call that logos religio now down here you have the mammon church and what's the goal here what am i aiming at i'm coming to scripture am i going to Aim to transform, to do, be, and become a better future version of myself and agopically aid in the same for others? Or am I going to come to the scripture to arrive at correct propositional doctrinal conclusions with persuasive explanatory power instilling a high degree of certainty? And I know what you're thinking. Those of you out there who are in a mammon church and want to defend it, you are thinking, well, why can't you do both? I'm doing both. You are not. And you cannot. Okay. Uh, no man can serve God and mammon. It's not going to happen. And God, Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. That's where we're getting all this from, okay? You cannot, and you will not. And you're going to try to justify what you are already doing as if you are doing the thing. You are not. You can do one of these, but you cannot do both. You have to get that into your head. You cannot do both. Now, each time I change slides, we're going to see what gets added. Okay. Now, relevance realization is key. And you have relevance realization on the top and on the bottom because the direction in which you're oriented determines what stands out to you as relevant. You have a salience landscape. Things stand out to you. And the direction that you're oriented will determine of all the things in your purview, which of those are appropriate to focus on. That's your relevance factor. And your, this, this is a huge deal in, in cognition and your ability to understand things. Somebody actually did a hit piece on me for using the word cognition. Can you believe that? <laughs> there, I mean, people just trying to find the devil everywhere. And uh, uh, I mean, people, like, they just don't even deserve a response in my, in my opinion. But the word cogitations is in the Bible. And we are to understand in the Bible. And the Bible talks about knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Cognition is very, very important. So you need to understand, just as you had a, if you had a computer that was processing data, you would need to know how it processes data and what its vulnerabilities are for processing data. You need to know the same thing about yourself because you have to work with data. How are you as a data processor? Okay. So this up arrow here, it involves dialogue non-rivalry, Metcalf's Law, coherence, and this is the Logos, okay? The Logos is in all of this. The 
counterpart to this, on the downside, instead of dialogue, you have debate. Instead of non-rivalry, you have rivalry. Instead of Metcalfe's Law, you have scarcity. You say, Kevin, what is Metcalfe's Law? The value of a network is defined increases by the number of nodes in the network. Okay, So uh, let me make that simpler for you. If, if you, the internet, for example, it's more valuable the more things you can connect to. The more websites there are, the more computers there are on the, on the internet, the more valuable it is to be a part of it. Uh, Microsoft Office. The more people who use Microsoft Office, the more ubiquitous it is and the more valuable it is to have and use and to sell that, that kind of thing. Um, what, what's a real good one is probably language, right? If you were the only one who spoke a particular language, it would not do you any good because you couldn't use it to communicate with anybody else. So I'm an English speaker. The more people who speak English, the better it is for me because the more people I can communicate with. That's Metcalfe's Law. All right, so we don't operate on scarcity. Um, we want as many people doing the thing up here as possible. And you might say, well, down here in Mammon Church, we want them doing it too. No, actually, uh, you are incentivized in Mammon Church to guard and hoard information at certain hierarchical thresholds. You can only know this stuff if you pay $80,000 to go to seminary. You can only know this stuff if we let you in the club and you get hired to be an XYZ person if, if you're a professor or a deacon or a pastor. You know, you have to have, it's, it's a hierarchically prorated access to data and it, you strategically, and if, you ever, if you're dealing with Calvinists, for example, and all Calvinism, Provisionism, Arminianism, all those things are down here on the bottom. They're all down there on the bottom. And the way they interact with each other, like a Calvinist will know a flaw to their own arguments, but they won't let you know that, and they will try to hide that, and they come up with all kinds of fancy, clever ways to state things to try to hide the fact from you that this data vulnerability in their system, okay? So it behooves you to create artificial scarcity with data so that you can use strategically withheld data and the threshold to get access to it as a means of leveraging power over people. And that's what happens in the Mammon Church. And, and then you would have coherence. Now the Dunbar number for coherence is about 150. It's really between... 150 and 500, but 150 is the number that's cited the most often. But instead of coherence down here, you have factionalism. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, that sort of thing. So this is the Mammon Church, and this is the Logos Church up here. Now you cannot aim for both of these at the same time. You cannot, you cannot, all right? So I'm trying to describe this for you to help you so that you can know. When I tell people, you know, if your church has a creed, They'll be like, well, you one of those people I have no creed but Christ because that's a creed. Those, you know, those kind of ridiculous people like that. Um, that's not what I'm trying to be, but this is the long answer to that question, and we'll see why as we go. So the next thing, if you are on these different trajectories, if you go down here, well, up here at the top level, you're, what you have access to is all four kinds of knowing in an even way. If you are in Logos Church, Logos religion, you have per, you're using participatory, perspectival, procedural, and propositional knowing, all four kinds of knowing. You're using them all four. Some people think that I'm against propositional knowing. No, absolutely not. What I'm against is the uh, <laughs> the 
the inverted scale ratio out the disproportionate use of and reliance upon propositional knowing. You see, in order for propositional knowing over here to have any value, you and I must agree that it points to something in these three kinds of knowing. We must agree on that or the proposition means nothing. You say, what do you mean? Ever listen to somebody speak a foreign language that you don't know? The propositions mean nothing because there's no agreement between the two of you that those propositions are pointing at anything that is real knowing. Okay? Propositional knowing is the currency of knowing. It's like money. It's very valuable because of what it can point to, because of what it can obtain and get you a hold of, but it is not the thing. It can only point to the thing. It is only a pointer. It is only a signifier. It is not the thing. So you have to have a good relationship with propositional knowing, with the four kinds of knowing, to know that about propositional knowing. Now down here in the Mammon Church, there is a disproportionate overemphasis on propositional knowing, and largely because of ignorance. Most people in the propositional church have never heard of these things. They don't know in the Mammon Church. They've never heard of these things. They don't know what they are. They don't know to optimize for them. And when that's the case, you fall ignorantly. It's due to ignorance. You fall into the rut of having a proposition-centric definition of what your church is. And that is very dangerous. So you have all these, these statements. We're going to talk more about this as we go. But the four kinds of knowing are really tied into everything that we're going to talk about here. We have videos on the four kinds of knowing. We did a live video back in late September where we actually had cognitive scientist uh, Dr. John Verveke came on the channel and talked about the four kinds of knowing. So to get more info on the four kinds of knowing, please go watch that video. He also gives a great description of the meaning crisis in that video well, as well, twice, at the beginning and at the end. Now the next thing we want to look at now is the mode of edification. In the Logos Church, we have peer-to-peer -peer mesh network topology. What's going, what do you mean there? In Ephesians 4, 16, the whole body is fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, making maketh the increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. So peer-to-peer -peer mesh network topology, everybody is helping edify everybody else. In the Mammon Church, you have a top-down broadcast modality of edification. There's one preacher, lots of pew sitters. There is no... There is no interactive. Now, a lot of churches are trying to address this by having small groups and things like that. But the top-down broadcast model is still what's going on there. Now, it's easy to say this. It's easy to say that this is better than the other thing. But the implied task there is that everybody who participates in the peer-to-peer -peer mesh network topology, they have to bring it. In other words, they have to increase their level of expertise, knowledge, wisdom, and sovereignty and understanding. They have to increase all of that and bring that to the table. Okay, um, you can't just start doing peer to you can't you, you don't automatically have anything worth edifying somebody else with. Okay, so you need to be able to bring yourself to the capacity up to the capacity so that you can edify other people. It's not automatic, and so this top-down broadcast thing. It's, it's necessary to start off there, but it's designed to be like a preschool kind of thing. If you're a Christian, preschool kind of thing is a top-down broadcast, and we're supposed to grow out of that to where we can. But this kind of Christian, this Christian attitude where, you know, Jesus has done all the work, and I just have to sit back and don't do anything, and I can sit around and, and watch the Gaithers all day long and not do anything for Christ, 
That is not a, a biblical version of Christianity. You need to get up and, and do something. You need to uh, increase the capacity at which you can bring value to yourself and others. And you constantly need to be working on that. Now, a lot of these other things that we're going to talk about will feed into this. Now, the next thing we're going to add. So look and see what I'm adding. What's not there? What is there? The next thing that we're going to add is faith. Faith in the Logos Church is agopic. Remember love, charity? It's agopic, interactive, social connectedness and commitment to fortify the healthy bonds of tension with all meaningful entities and activities in life. And when I say tension, I'm not talking about like I walked in there and it was tense. I mean tension like everything's connected by a spider web and all these connections have a certain tensile strength to them. Something like that. So it's an agopic interactive social connectedness and commitment to fortify the healthy bonds of tension with all meaningful entities and activities of life, including base reality, including God, including other people, including material real things, uh, including the water you drink and the way the breeze feels on your skin when you walk outside. Okay, Faith down here in the Mammon Church is a moralistic commitment. When people are moralistic, that's one way you can identify them as being ideologically possessed. They think that if uh, so, they think that if you don't agree with them and affirm certain things are true, worded a certain way, then they think they are morally support, superior to you, and you are morally inferior to them. We've seen some of that go on in our chat sometimes. I have it covered up right now, so I don't know what's going on right now, but we've seen this happen. So. Faith down here in the Mammon Church is a moralistic commitment to affirm systematically disambiguated propositions absent phenomenological or epistemic veracity. You say, what does that mean? Phenomenological is the phenomenon that you experience. Your, your five senses can tell you whether or not you experience something. And then epistemic is when you use, that's the science, epistemology is the science of how we come to believe things that we think are true, Right? And instead of having 100% certainty versus a 0% certainty, we don't want to do black and white splitting like that. We, we assign, up here in the Logos Church, we assign confidence margins. Down here, everything's black or white. You have to believe all this stuff or you're a heretic and you're unorthodox, all this kind of thing. And we'll get into that too. So the, the paradigms of Mammon Church break you away from your phenomenological experience and they break you away from epistemic practices and they make you feel more moral and righteous for believing certain things for which there is no phenomenological verification or epistemic ver verifiability. And that is a very bad place to be. And this thing where there's like a 60% uptick in people in suicide rates and mental health problems, all that kind of stuff comes from this kind of fake faith, which is not real faith, where you just believe propositions. This is also, you see, semantically disambiguated propositions that ties in. So you're in denial or avoidance of these three kinds of knowing or in ignorance of them. And you have all these propositions about, you know, the Trinity and the hypostatic union and what heaven's going to be like and what the glorified body is going to be like and exactly what the millennial reign of Christ is going to be like and and exactly when, where, and how the rapture will or will not happen, or if, you know, that kind of stuff that you can't verify. 
when you can't verify it epistemically or phenomenologically, there's no need to commit yourself to a particular view of the thing. You can hold several different views of how things might go in possibility space, assign confidence margins to them, and then sleep soundly at night. Okay, and then when people uh, offer arguments against those things, you don't have to feel personally attacked. All right. Now, next thing I want to add, you see these things at the top and bottom, right? <clears throat> Down here in the Mammon Church, it is paradigmatic. You have Calvinism, Provisionism, Arminianism, Dispensationalism, Catholicism, Lutheranism, Covenant Theology, Free Grace, all that stuff. You know, there's some people on the channel who comment all the time, you need to stop talking about all this stuff and just preach free grace. But the problem is, if I am propositionally centric, even if all the propositions are true, I'm still in mammon church, I'm still disoriented, okay? Just realize that this thing might be uh, a little off. Now I've got to fix it on all these. <laughs> um, so Calvinism, Provisionism, Arminianism, Dispensationalism, Catholicism, Lutheranism, Covenant Theology, Free Grace, all that stuff. If it is a system, any, any system of propositions, any system of propositions, any system of propositions, okay, is mammon church. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter how true they are, doesn't matter how false they are. So what are we? The Logos Church, what do we want to be? We want to be meta-paradigmatic, above the paradigms. So I can understand all of these paradigms, and I don't have to be emotionally identified with any of them. I don't have to assign 100% confidence margin to any of them. They can all be floating out there disconnected from me personally. I don't need to confirm or deny them. They are, they are there. They are not me. I am not them. There they are. Okay? So what are we going to do to navigate through life? And what are we going to do to navigate through the Bible? We're going to use first principles thinking applied fluidly in all situations. Okay? There is no attachment to propositional conclusions. I don't have to attach myself to anything like this. So every time I encounter something, I don't have to have a doctrine of XYZ. There's no doctrine of calling or election or predestination. There's no doctrines of those things. Those are words that appear in a text, and every time I encounter them, I'm going to use first principles thinking for how to interpret that passage and eliminate all the presuppositions that I'm aware of and try to discover other presuppositions that I'm not aware of. That's how I'm going to do it every single time. And you get, you get better at it kind of like a child learning to read. You might think this is slow. Well, it took them 300 years to write XYZ sets of doctrines and all these men thought so hard. You, that's, that's like a four-year-old reading. You're going to do first principles thinking so well, so good, so fast, it's going to be very, become very fluid to you so that you could generate the appropriate section of any statement of faith based on examination of the relevant scripture on the fly and be correct and with epistemic humility and encourage others around you to help with the process. Now, as you are doing first principles thinking, you have to remember that we're not doing it to do this down here. We're not doing it to arrive at correct propositional doctrinal conclusions with persuasive explanatory power instilling a high degree of certainty. We are doing it to transform, to do, be, and become a better version of the future self and agopically aid in the same for others. That is why we're doing our first principles thinking. Let me add that to the dictionary so it doesn't unline in red anymore. Now, what are we going to add next? Let me see if there's any comments so far. Um... <clears throat> Let's see. Cr 
Christ unites us in love, but only when we put it in love to others. I know he meant to say unites. This is love shining out, not pushing others to believe, but showing them the Christ in us. Uh, why are you saying all the things that I've said for years? God bless you. <laughs> uh, what you see in here depends a lot upon where you're standing and the kind of person you are. That's a, that's a pretty good quote. That's perspectival knowing right there. Um, our actions promote God's word in us. Knowing many, many verses is useless if you don't know how to apply them in the real world, which is uh, in continuous change. Peter only grew by doing. we got a hookup between watching your channel because of Jed. All right. Uh, going beyond verbal proposition to correct clothes, check, weird haircut, check, proper voice inflection when stating certain words like God and glory. Glory! He's been watching John Hagee to spell it that way. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So what's the next thing we're going to add to our list? We're going to add this here. In the Logos Church, we directly connect with others, and we directly connect with reality. In the Mammon Church, there's a proxy connection with others, and you're insulated from reality. Regardless of what you encounter in reality, you have a set of beliefs that comes between you and that, and you believe the thing you're supposed to believe. You affirm the things rather than actually let your senses tell you what's happening and, and, and calibrate and incorporate them into what's going on. Now, to directly connect with others, you know, in my experience in Christianity, I found that you may think you have friends, you may think you have loved ones, but as soon as you... As soon as you start to question the paradigm, you have to change your friend set and you have to you lose all your friends. And then, and then in some more cultish places, somebody in our Discord shared a video about the Plymouth Brethren and how they're acting like a cult. And in some places when you leave, you get shunned for life and you can't even talk to your family or friends anymore. All right? And uh my social life lately has has been include it includes things that are doing secular things such as playing sports like volleyball for example and uh, if anybody changes their beliefs about a particular thing nobody loses any friends you could even stop liking volleyball and you still don't lose any friends okay you don't lose any you have a genuine connection with the person down here in mammon church people are connected with the paradigm and you are a proxy of that connection and as soon as you break from the paradigm you break from them up here in Logos Church, you have a real, genuine, direct connection with the human being. It's not contingent upon whether or not they affirm your paradigm. All right? That's a key point. What are we going to add next? In the Logos Church, morality is distinct from epistemics, ontology, and metaphysics. What are you talking about? Um, in, the Lo in the Mammon Church... Morality is the basis of epistemics, ontology, or metaphysics. What are these things? Epistemics, epistemology is the science of how we come to know things. Ontology is the study of what is. What is it that exists? All right? Metaphysics are things that are beyond our capacity for current scientific level of physics to test. Okay? So, for example, if you wanted to say that, there's, that Jesus and Jesus and God the Father are comprised of the same substance. If you want to say that, that's a metaphysical statement. There's no way you can prove that using physics today. You have to, you have to decide to believe that. But why would you need to believe that? If you've know, if you got a job changing tires 
down at the uh, auto parts place, how does that help you? How does it help you to make this statement, to affirm the statement that God the Son and God the Father are of the same substance? Why do you even need to, why do you even need to think about that? Why does that even need to be brought up? Why is that a thing? It doesn't need to be a thing. It's very disorienting, okay? And the thing is, with the metaphysical claim, people will say, well, if you don't believe X, Y, Z about the substance of God the Son and God the Father, then you can't be saved. Or you're a heretic. Or if you don't believe X, Y, Z about the Trinity, or if you accept the Trinity, you're a heretic. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. There's no way you could know the ontology of God. There's no way you could know the metaphysics of God or heaven. There's no way that epistemics can tell you something like that. So down here in Mammon Church, you'll notice that you are more moral, you're considered moral, if you affirm the things like Calvinism and Provisionism and Arminianism. If you're in that group, if you're in that in-group, you're more moral for affirming things that should be decided by epistemics, ontology, and metaphysics, not by morality. You're not more or less moral when you think something is epistemically not viable or, or not epistemically warranted. This doesn't make you any more or less moral when you're that. But when you're ideologically possessed, what you believe determines how moral you are. And, it, it, and this goes over into, like, say, uh, climate change and environmentalism and the abortion issue. What you, depending on what group you're in, what you believe about those things determines whether or not that group thinks you are moral or not. You see, that's how ideological possession works. So if you're questioning somebody and grilling somebody in the chat section, and I'm not saying anybody is, but we've had it happen before, um, and you say, uh, will you agree that da-da-da-da-da? And then w based on what they say, are you, you're going to assess them as more or less moral because they affirm a certain proposition? That is not the proper relationship to propositions. It, it, we should not have a moral relationship with epistemics, ontology, or metaphysics. So you Christians need to separate morality from epistemics, ontology, and metaphysics. Do not intertwine morality with those things, okay? Do not intertwine morality with whether or not people affirm propositions that can be found in books like this, all right? Get away from that. What's the next thing we're going to add? Up here in the Logos religion, your senses are exercised to discern both good and evil. Hebrews chapter 5. I didn't have that on my verse list, but that's where that comes from. Hebrews chapter 5, 12 through 14. Um, down here in the Mammon church, your senses are suppressed and subjected to paradigmatic worldview and a belief system. And then you get out of sorts with your feelings and then pretty soon you're 70 something years old and you have, you have a zero emotional quotient and you don't understand emotions at all. Um, you don't understand senses at all. You don't understand phenomenology at all. Not a good, not a good way to be. The next thing we're going to add is in the Logos religion, the beliefs are... I mean for that to happen. In the Logos religion, your beliefs are subject to phenomenal experience. In other words, if whatever you... Ex phenomenological... If I... I got a table in front of me. Okay, here's a, here's a plug, right? A USB-C power plug. If I... I phenomenologically feel this, and I see it, and I've seen it work. I've seen it charge a phone. 
all right? So if I know that this is a thing because I've seen it, I've touched it, I can taste it, I can smell it, and I've seen it power up a phone, I, I know what that is. Now, if there was a belief system that told me that this wasn't really this, it was something else, or it wasn't really here, I would negate the belief system in favor of like the fact that I saw this thing. And we need to get in touch with that. Now, down here in Mammon Church, beliefs outweigh phenomenological experience. In other words, another way to say this is people allow their belief systems to gaslight them. That's another way to say that, okay? What's gaslighting? Gaslighting is when you know you experience something and somebody or something or someone is trying to convince you that you didn't or that it's not real or that it's not valid. And it gets you to question yourself and it makes you to start thinking you're crazy, okay? Um, I have some experience uh, being subjected to gaslighting, all right, both religiously and otherwise. And it is not fun. It'll make you think you're crazy. It will make you think you're crazy. And it brings you to the place where you can no longer trust your five senses, all right? And our five senses are God given to us for a reason. And we need to, uh, we can use them for convergence and collaboration to find out whether or not something is so. In the next thing we're adding, in the Logos religion, propositions are fluid and interchangeable and evaluated on fidelity for the real. I'll explain that in a minute. In the Mammon church, propositions are fixed and ossified and evaluated on fidelity to the paradigm. Okay? This is Mammon church uh, manual here, right? right? Because they're talking about things that you can't see, like... They have a doctrine of adoption. Can you see, touch, taste, feel, smell, adoption in the Bible? No, you can't. So you have to have a set of propositions. And so it's very, it's very important for them that you have exact propositions worded in an exactly specific way. Why? Because you don't have any phenomenological experience with it. The example we've used many times on this channel is that imagine there's a view that you can see from the top of the mountain. And you can only see this view from the top of the mountain. But you've never been. But you want to convince people that you have been. So what you would have to do is you would listen to other people who've been to the top of the mountain. And you would hear their descriptions. And then you would mimic their descriptions. And you're using words to kind of feel around. And you would have to mimic them exactly because you don't know exactly what they saw. So you have to say exactly what they said. See? And... If you have not seen the view, but you're trying to make people think you have, you would hang on every word of these descriptions that have come from other people, and you would have to mimic them exactly. That is many people's relationship to the Bible and to theology. They've never seen the thing. They've never seen anything spiritual. They've never perceived the kingdom of God with spiritual eyes, or you might say with your spiritual eye, if thine eye, singular, be full of light, be single, if thine eye be single, then is the body full of light, okay? All these people walking around claiming to have the truth. We've got the truth. They have never seen the truth. They've only seen signifiers of it. And they have to repeat those. And they have this big emphasis on creeds and on systematic theology for the same reason of the guy who has never been to the top of the mountain and seen the view. He's hanging on the words. Now, once you get up there and you see the view, you no longer need those words. Now you can describe freely exactly what you saw in your own words. And you don't have to worry about fidelity to any particular account of what somebody else saw. You have seen it for yourself. And then all those words 
they become transparent, and they become irrelevant. So once you have seen the thing, this is completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant once you have seen the thing. I don't need that anymore. I don't need that affecting my relevance realization anymore. You see? When I'm trying to be oriented, I don't need it at all. And even scripture, to a degree, becomes transparent to where no longer are you hanging on exact, precise words of exactly how it's worded. You've seen the thing, and now you see the signifiers, which are finite, pointing at this infinite thing. And now you can use other ones to point at the thing. And you can recognize things that are outside Scripture, which are also pointing at the things. You know, this is all God's creation, don't you? Right? It is all going to point back to Him, even if it's not found in the Bible. It's not like everything outside the Bible is evil and wicked. This is all God's creation. And it all points back to God. And when you can see clearly, you recognize that. You see that. And you don't need it explained to you. But what we want people to do is to see clearly. So when people, for, for those who can't see clearly, they have to have fixed propositions. And they're ossified. They have London Baptist Confession of 1689. There's people today still following something that's almost, you know, it's like almost 600 years out of date. All right? Because they've never seen anything. They've never seen, they've never perceived anything spiritual. So they are hanging on the words of all these dead men from hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years ago. Who also did not see the thing. All right? It's, it's people who copied, who people who copied, people who copied, people who copied, people who have been to the top of the mountain. And they've never been themselves. So it's ossified. It's rigid. And uh, the validity is evaluated on fidelity to the paradigm. Does this stick to the Calvinist paradigm? Does it stick to the provisionist paradigm? That's the language of somebody who has not seen the thing. Now, in the Logos religion, the propositions are fluid and interchangeable. You can word things a thousand different ways, and it doesn't have to be the same way every time. Right? Evaluated on fidelity to the real. In real time, using first principles thinking on the fly. Okay? Are you following me? Y'all following me? Somebody said, let's see, how will the church discern things in proposition mode when dealing with upcoming issues like genomic and eugenics, artificial intelligence, digital and social media, and the metaverse? Very great comment. Great comment, Joe Sylvie. Scott uh, Baldridge, later question. How does emotional trauma, and, and all this stuff would have to go back to um, all these things have to come back to directly connecting with others. And you need to go back and watch our video on having good faith dialogue with people that you disagree with. Uh, later question, how does emotional trauma play on how one interprets phenomenologically the, ide the ideology one comes in contact with? That's another great question. I don't have time to get into that here, but that'd be a great question for us to deal with on Wednesday night because emotional trauma does play on um, phenomenology. It separates your mind from what your body is trying to tell your mind and become dissociated. Um, so that definitely needs to be dealt through. Now, when it comes to participating in dialogos and sense-making in a rule omega, um, some people like Jordan Hall have said that people, to, to have a degree of sovereignty that you can bring and participate in that, 
you would need to be healed from trauma in order to do that. And uh, I have no reason to doubt that, but um, I'm telling you he said it because I haven't evaluated it ex experimentally myself. But I, I would tend to think that that's so. The church does a poor job with abortion. How can we do better facing artificial reproductive technology? So that's a very interesting. That's, that's two different things in my opinion. Abortion versus artificial reproductive technology. Are you describing the gospel according to jazz? No, I don't think so. Um, the next thing we're going to add. On, on the uh, Mammon Church, you have a creed. And on the Logos religion, you have charity rather than a creed. And when I say creed, of course, anything that you state could be called a creed. All right. And so what I'm saying is that we don't have, we are not tightly hanging on to semantically disambiguated propositions. Right. We are exercising in charity. We are going to use propositions as we do that, but we are not identifying with those propositions. Okay. What else do we have? Okay. We have up here, genuine personal interaction. And down here we have formulaic arguments. Like a, if a Calvinist and a provisionist gets in an argument, they're going to be running scripts on each other, like two computer programs. You've either been programmed by provisionism or by Calvinism, and you're going to run those scripts out and see who can generate the most you know, clever post hoc rationalizations for the arguments that the other one puts out, and it's just script running. Whereas genuine personal inter interaction is a way different thing. So this, there's, you can't have debate and rivalry, scarcity and factionalism and have genuine personal interactions. Okay. It, this formulaic argument stuff versus genuine interactions. And, and there should be another thing that I should probably put up here would be something like curiosity. All right. And I might, I might add, I might go to the first slide up here. We're on slide 21. So I might go to the first slide up here and uh, give myself a little reminder to put curiosity in here somewhere. And this is something that can be modified all the time. We want to, we want to keep um, doing this. And curiosity versus having something to say and not, not really caring what it, like you just want to fix and correct that person. You don't care what their story is or where they're from or why they think the way they do. You just have to utter things and you just want to correct them. And when you get a chance, write down the book, The Coaching Habit and uh, read that book for uh, other ways to dialogue with people as well. So you have genuine personal interactions in the Logos religion and you have formulaic arguments in the mammon in the Mammon Church. Um, what just popped up next? The next thing is in the Logos religion, we have actions that increase effectiveness and they're built on value selection and discernment. Down here, we have beliefs that instill the feeling of righteousness while rendering the subject ineffective. Beliefs. Now, this phrasing comes from. Daniel Schmachenberger was talking about how the CIA in COINTELPRO, the CIA um, stifled the black power movement with postmodernism by 
getting the people who in the 60s who were revolutionaries trying to take over the government, they gave them an ideology which would make them feel moralistically righteous. Remember down here, the moral basis of epistemics, ontology, and metaphysics, which would make them feel morally righteous, but be ineffective. So they would, they would have all these rallies and promote all these beliefs, but they would not actually be able to have a revolution and take over the country. And so it's, it's actually pretty clever to do that to somebody. So instead of fighting directly against them, you give them something that makes them feel more righteous while being less effective. So instead of feeling righteous and being less effective, we're actually going to be effective. We're going to have actions that increase effectiveness and increase our agency, our agency arena attunement, perspectival knowing, four kinds of knowing. And it's going to be built on the capacity for value selection. Why do I value this over this? Why do I value life over death? Why do I value wearing shoes that tie versus shoes that have Velcro? Why do I value these things? And so you get better at value selection and at discernment. And discernment has to be connected to your orientation. Over here, what are you aiming at? These arrows, what direction are you headed in? You can't have discernment if you don't know where you're headed because you're not oriented properly. You need to, be, you need to know how you're trying to be oriented so that you can use discernment to figure out whether or not this thing, whatever it is, helps with that orientation or deters from it. If it helps, it can be, it can help the sacred or be part of it. If it hurts it, it is profane. We'll talk more about that too. So you're going to have an ecology of practices that help you be more agentic and more effective. You're actually going to produce better people and better things instead of just have beliefs that make you feel righteous. Well, I don't have any tattoos like them. Well, I don't say cuss words like them. Well, I don't, uh, I don't have any nose piercings like them. You feel righteous, but you're ineffective. You're not making anybody better either, you see? So you can complain about all the worldly stuff, but you're not, you're not making the world better by, by being that way. We have to be the Christian. We can't just complain about all the things that we don't understand that are changing, right? People, there's a lot of things going on about gender right now. The abortion issues coming up. The, uh, you know, school shootings and gun control. You can't just complain about all the people that disagree with you. You have to be the kind of person that has a relationship with wisdom, whereby you can bring people together to work together on all the things that you do care about. Right? Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Righteous Mind, is helpful there as well. The next thing we're going to add is up here. Down here in, in Calvinism, we have technical debt. And up here, we have inexhaustible wealth, resource construction, uh, inexhaustible resource of identity construction, or an inexhaustible wealth of resource construction. Okay, Use one of those words when you're reading that. Don't use both of them. What do I mean by this? Um, look how you're oriented. That's slide 23. The Calvinist said this. The Calvinist said, Calvinism is the most thorough, well-thought-out system of theology in the history of Christianity. That's what the Calvinist said. So if you... What it really is, it's technical debt. There are so... You know why there's so many answers in Calvinism? You know why this book is thicker than my Bible? <laughs> you know why? Because they have to keep coming up with more clever post hoc rationalizations to justify the, uh, the contradictions, okay? The term technical debt is a software 
engineering term. And when you build software and it has a problem, you have to go in and build a fix to it. And then eventually that fix, or maybe there's a workaround and employing that fix creates that it adds extra work to machines to have to read that code and sometimes it adds extra work to people to have to execute that code or to work with it or employ the work around that kind of thing so as you keep putting band-aids on stuff eventually your band-aid code is more in proportion than the original code and it's more band-aids than than the thing all right than the software and you have technical debt so, and, and computers will wind up spending a lot more resources processing that weird uh, tucked in there extra Band-Aid code than they would if it was all written as if it had been all conceived of from the start and put together fluidly, okay? And so Calvinism, what do you have with Calvinism? Instead of just being a Christian, you have technical debt. So a lot of people are spending all of their time coming up with more and more of these things to to justify the Calvinism. And so instead of being a Christian, instead of being effective, instead of making the world a better place, instead of finding something that has uh, all the best attributes and aspects of both a village and a city and finding a new way for people to live together and having coherence, instead of spending your time doing that, you're spending your time further semantically disambiguating propositions because you're encountering all kinds of contradictions and you have to find a new explanation for why that contradiction shouldn't be there. It is technical debt. So what this person is saying, when a person says this, they're really, I mean, I don't like to use the word stupid a lot, but they're stupid. And what they don't realize is the reason there is so much stuff, thorough, the reason there is so much stuff on Calvinism is because it is not well thought out uh, Augustine was jumping the gun when he knee-jerk reacted with Pelagius and jumped back to his Manichaean Gnosticism to create Calvinism in the first place. And then limited atonement was part of the technical debt that Gottschalk of Orbis added to it later in the early 9th century. It's all technical debt. The tulip is technical debt. The sign out of Dort is technical debt. The London Baptist Confession is technical debt. It's all these things that that add processing that, that consume processing resources that could be used for other better things, right? It is the absolute worst thing. So when a person makes a statement like this, what they're telling you is they don't understand anything, ever, anything. They don't understand anything. There's nothing that that person understands. I would not trust that person to take my dog on a walk. Where were we? Now, what we have up here. What are you trying to do? Now think about what you're trying to do. Am I aiming down here at semantically disambiguated propositions? Or am I aiming to do, be, and become more like Christ? The best future version of myself that I can possibly be. So that future version of yourself, instead of creating this kind of nonsense, you're creating you. You and God are working together to co-create the future you that's going to exist. You and the future you are working together. So that future version of yourself, who do we have in the chat here? We have, we have, uh, okay, Megram. The future version of Megram is 
an inexhaustible resource of identity construction. The future you is who you can reach forward to the future and you can pull the the maturity and the expertise from future Megram, and I can pull the maturity and expertise from future Kevin, and I can pull that back to now, and I can use that to construct my identity. All right? Raw code, no technical debt. So I'm not creating technical debt with a bunch of nonsense and expending all my energy building something that doesn't matter, doesn't make any difference. I'm actually building something that is becoming better and becoming more agentic that can actually make a difference in the world and can be more effective. So those are two different things that are happening in the Logos religion versus the Mammon church. You have technical debt with all these propositions that you're trying to semantically disambiguate, or your future self is an inexhaustible resource of identity construction because you're oriented this way, not this way. And that orientation makes all the difference. And if you're not oriented properly, you will never have this coming from your sacred second self that you could possibly be. You'll never have that. You'll never be constructing your identity into that thing. The next thing is down here in the Mammon Church, you can blindly rely on disambiguated propositions, blindly, because you can't see. We already talked about going to the top of the mountain, but up here in the Logos Church, you're working to see clearly. And what I'm trying to do here making this chart and showing you these two directions, think of it as, you remember one of those connect the dots things you used to do when you were a kid on the newspaper? I'm trying to give you enough dots to connect. I can't, I can't be exhaustive here. You can never be exhaustive. You can never tell you all the things. But I'm trying to connect enough dots for you to where you can start to get a vision and an image of the thing. And then you know what to aim for. And then you get a sense of whether or not you're getting closer or further away from it. All right? And it's not something that I can tell you. It's not something I can give you in propositions. But it is something that maybe if I give you enough signifiers, you can start to fill in the blanks. And I also want to disambiguate this from that and help you see the difference. So when somebody asks, you know, can you point out a good church in my area? And I tell you, no, I can't. You see why, because no matter, I don't care if it's Catholic, Methodist, Calvinist, Independent Baptist, they are all this. They are all this. And they can't see clearly. So they're blindly relying on propositions. Some propositions in some places are better than others. Um, I think a, Cal, uh, a video came out today on a different channel that was Calvinism versus provisionism. Well, you see where it's, it's all down here. There, there is no this up here versus that down there. They're not comparing something better with something worse. They're comparing two laterally bad things. You understand? So we want to see clearly, whereas down here you're blindly relying on disambiguated propositions. We want to see clearly instead. What's the next one we're going to add? Here. Down here, up here. We'll do this one first. In the Logos religion, you have hope, optimism, agency, effectiveness, and reciprocal opening between you as the agent and the arena. Down here in, in the Mammon Church, you have nihilism, cynicism, helplessness, ineffectiveness, and reciprocal narrowing. Now, nihilism is very... I'm, I'm aware of several people that I'm thinking of right now who they've come to difficult points in their life and they just have 
nothing to give and nothing to do. They're like, I just want to crawl and I just want to go away from everything I've ever known. They, they don't have any capacity to maintain continuity of contact with something and make themselves and it better. They think that getting away from it is going to make it better, but they're just going to perpetuate that somewhere else. They're going to do the same thing somewhere else. I know somebody, I'm, let me give you a small example. Somebody was having to deal with a problem at their house where they were having to rearrange everything to get rid of an infestation and, uh, and then clean everything afterwards. And this person was lamenting that they didn't have anybody to help them despite there being other people living at the house. And they said, well, I'm just going to take my dog and disappear and never come back. That's nihilism. That's a lack of agency. That's not your, your mammon church has not equipped you to do, be, and become anything good or better or be effective. You feel righteous for having beliefs, but you're not effective if you just want to run off. Now, that person wound up actually being effective. They said that. They said that nihilistic statement, but then went on to actually do the thing, um, which is the pattern of Jesus Christ, is to take responsibility for things that are not your fault, endure the cost of that responsibility, and then things are better as a result. And that's what happened. And that is the pattern of Christ. That's what you should do. And that is what every Christian should be aiming for. So you should have hope, have optimism. You should have agency, effectiveness, reciprocal opening. The voluntary adoption of responsibility is up here. Nihilism is down here. The next thing. In the Logos religion, you have ego transcendence. You have a proper relationship with your ego. And you can take criticism and you can take constructive criticism and complaints and not fly off the handle and lose your temper and start yelling and fussing and that kind of stuff. Down here, people are egoic and narcissistic. And this is, this is bad for two reasons. First of all, you can't have a, a serious dialogue when things need to be corrected with behavior. A serious adult dialogue about things that need to change. And also when they're egoic and narcissistic, and by the way, Calvinism breeds narcissism, all right? And Hedo, Pierre Hedo pointed out that Augustine actually created a narcissistic version of Christianity, which has been going on ever since. And of course, Calvinism is the prime example of that. It breeds narcissism. And when you are egoic and narcissistic and you see your paradigm, like Calvinism or Provisionism or Arminianism, you see your paradigm as part of your identity, well, now it's like super hard to talk to you because now, it, now not only can I not criticize you, like I don't like the way you use your fork when you're eating that way, it's gross and I wish you would have better manners. You can't just talk about simple things like that. But now whenever I talk about anything in the belief structure, they feel personally attacked. And so it's, it increases the dysfunction to not have a proper relationship with the ego, to, to not have the right kind of humility about that. What's the next thing? And so that is very important. The ability to talk, to have, that's, you know, that, if you want to put something at maybe the top value of what you're striving to become for you, you want to be able to have a calm and productive and connecting conversation with anybody, especially people that you disagree with. I'm not saying that's going to be possible. That's a goal of mine. And there are certain people I know who I don't know how to talk to them. I just don't know how to talk to them. And I consider myself a person who could talk to just about anybody. But 
you're not gonna be able to do this with anybody. But how do you, like how do I have a a productive, connected, meaningful conversation with somebody who disagrees disagrees with me about abortion or climate change or Bible versions or you know gun control or you name it? How do I talk to these people? How do I have a meaningful, connected, like genuine personal connection in dialogue with somebody like that? How do I do that? That's something that you want to strive for, and you cannot do that if you don't have a good relationship a proper, appropriate relationship with your ego, okay? That's very, very important. So I would say ego transcendence is a... Metaparadigmatic thinking and ego transcendence are prerequisites to be able to communicate in the, in the types of ways that are essential for mankind to grow, for you to grow. I would call those prerequisites for sure. Next thing we're going to add is um, the down here, the mammon church, you are dependent. Who are you dependent on? You're dependent upon your top-down broadcast person. You're dependent on your pastor, your preacher. You're, you're dependent upon the systematic theology, the words of other people. You're dependent, dependent, dependent. You're just dependent on all the things. But up here in the Logos religion, you are independent and self-sufficient. Now, you may not understand this, and it took me a few years to realize this, but dependency breeds resentment. This is one of the reasons, one of the reasons that teenagers often become rebellious is because as they start to become closer and closer to adulthood, they start to resent the fact that they are dependent upon somebody else. And if, if many of you have examples of this, say, um, say you're married and either the husband or wife's brother or sister comes to live with the married couple because they need to get back on their feet for a while. And it's just a matter of time before that person starts to become resentful of you and of the help that you're offering. They have no reason to be. They should be grateful and thankful, right? You would think. But it, but dependency breeds resentment. That's just what it does. Okay, So you, do, you want to excise yourself of any unnecessary dependencies that are in your life as much as possible. And I think it's okay. And I don't want to get into all the psychological stuff on this. But I think it's okay to have... A mutually agreed upon dependencies like like my wife and I agree to work together to pay certain bills together and things like that so I depend on her to do that but we agreed in that on that in advance and I could make it work without her if I wanted to but it's better that we partner together so you want to be independent and self-sufficient and you want all the dependent relationships you have to be elective and not necessary okay um, so that's something to think about, especially in the in the religious realm. And the next thing we're going to add here is responsibility and truthfulness versus. So in the logos religion, you have responsibility and truthfulness; they go together. And down here in the Mammon Church, you have resentment and deception. You ever hear all these sermons about forgiveness, and you don't know what to do? You you don't know how to forgive somebody, and you you like this this magic thing where you say I forgive them, and you don't know how to do that. Well. Dependency breeds resentment. <laughs> and if you are dependent upon somebody else to fix a problem, for example, that you should probably fix even though it's not your fault, you are going to resent them. Now, when you are resentful, your resentment against them has a narrative. It has a story that goes along with it. Here is why I resent them. Here's why I'm bitter at them. Here's why I'm angry about them. And what happens with that narrative is you will start to bring in things 
anything that will make that narrative more potent to justify your resentment, you will start to bring in data and stories to do that. And what happens then is you resort to deception, even self-deception, a very strong kind of self-deception, because now you believe you start you you're so invested in this resentment that you start to believe all these things you've incorporated into your resentment narrative and is as terrible as this sounds you start to become psychotic you become you you enter into psychosis which is a which is a disconnection from reality a very significant disconnection from reality to where you are operating somewhere other than where reality is. I know somebody who is in this situation right now. It is a very scary thing. And you don't, you get there gradually and you think, yeah, you don't even know what's happening. So responsibility, forgiveness uh, involves the voluntary adoption of responsibility uh, to make things better that are not your fault that they're bad. Okay. And then truthfulness and responsibility go together. When you abdicate responsibility, uh, truthfulness will go with it and resentment will come. And then there's gratefulness that comes in. There's another thing that I should probably add along with the one that had, uh, what slide are we on, 28? So it's another thing that I would want to add. I have curiosity and something else we want to work into here is gratefulness. Because gratefulness, uh, I forgot which one we were on. There we go. Gratefulness is a, a big deal when dealing with resentment. It staves off resentment. So you would have gratefulness up here and you would have something like cynicism down here instead of gratefulness. Um, and truthfulness is key too. Why? See down here these paradigms, Calvinism, Provisionism, Arminianism. When I say truthfulness, you're probably thinking of like not telling a lie. Like if I stopped at the place I wasn't supposed to go, I admit it and I don't lie about it. Or if I stole the pencil, I admit it and I don't lie about it. Okay. But what I'm talking about here, which is very important, it took me, it took me exposure to Jordan Peterson to get this. Is it when you are Calvinist and you're repeating Calvinism, you did not come up with that. You do not, you're repeating ideas of other people. Those are not yours, your ideas. You don't have the right to those ideas, but you're repeating them as if they are true, as if they are yours, as if you embody them and you do not. And that, I think, I can't remember what the name of the person was. It might've been Carl Rogers, but it might've been somebody else. When they talked about when you say something that isn't true, like uh, say you're lying on a polygraph test. No, I did not commit that murder or <laughs> No, I did not steal the pencil. Whatever it is. When you're lying, your body feels a certain way and you can interpret that as like weakness. It makes you feel weak when you say certain things that you know you can't back up. All right? <clears throat> and you'll, what, what I started to notice is that when I was spouting off independent Baptist doctrine, it felt the same to me as if I was lying about something. I felt weak and I felt like something else was going on. And then when I would say something like, I don't know, or here's three different views, I'm not sure which is true or if any of them are true, I felt stronger when I could say something like that rather than 
attach myself emotionally to one particular view that the independent Baptist was supposed to believe if they wanted to be a good moral little boy. All right. So these things are key. This responsibility and truthfulness, those, those are, those are very high on the value hierarchy. Those should be very, very, uh, salient in your relevance realization in your salience landscape should be perhaps most salient. What are we adding now? Over here, charity edifieth. That's in the Logos religion. Over here in the Mammon church, knowledge puffeth up. Why? Because the knowledge in the, in the Mammon church is propositional. And propositional knowledge without the other three kinds of knowing puffeth up. That's why, <laughs> that's why someone like James White, he's all, he's all bloated up. He comes across as so puffed up and, and egotistical like a blowfish because he's got all this propositional knowledge without the other three kinds of knowing. So his words are all empty and not pointing at anything real, right? So for everyone out here, everyone who is accustomed to mammon church type of stuff, he seems like some kind of genius. But for anybody who's in the Logos religion, he's not a real boy. He's, he's still a puppet. Uh, his nose is growing too. That's where he is. He's Pinocchio. Pre-transformation, turn into a donkey. That's a good way to see that too. All this stuff, when you repeating all this stuff, Calvinism, Provisionism, Arminianism, Dispensationalism, Lutheranism, Covenant theology, you're, you're like uh, Pinocchio turning into a donkey. <laughs> you lose the ability to speak. It's not, see, it's not you speaking anymore. It's people like this speaking through you. You have nothing to say. You may as well not show up. Had a Calvinist online wanted wanted to talk with me about Calvinism. I said, "Sure, I will. Uh, I will be glad to talk with you as long as you want at the rate of one hundred and fifty dollars an hour." And by the way, that stands for any Calvinist who wants to talk. You want to chat with me? Make an appointment with me, and we'll go at it for one hundred and fifty dollars an hour. Why do I say that? Because no Calvinist is any different as far as Calvinism is concerned. There's no reason to have one Calvinist over any other particular Calvinist. They are avatars of the same ideology. I'm familiar with the ideology. I don't need to spend my time hearing you go through it too. You see, it may sad, it may scratch an itch for you, all right. And if it's and if it's that bad, well, pay up and we'll do it. But I don't care. It's not it's not that much of an itch to me. I know exactly what you're going to say. I can look at the verse and I can tell you all the things that you're going to say because I know the paradigm too. I just don't believe it. And you do. That's the only difference between us. It's not whether or not you know the paradigm, whether or not you know the arguments. It's whether or not you believe them or not. I'm not attached to them. And I think they contradict scripture. So that's that. <clears throat> what are we adding next? Hmm. I don't see anything changing on this one. And maybe I messed that one up. What are we adding on this one? So down here we have, um, on Logos religion, we have wisdom attunement and cooperative edification as opposed to what? Down here on the Mammon Church, you have ideological purity purging. Now, what do you mean? An ideological purity purging. If you don't believe, I, I told you before on this channel, I've been in churches where People had to leave. Like if you if they found out that you didn't believe in the pre-trib rapture, they would kick you out of the church. You're not you're not an ideological purist. 
we have to get rid of you. Um, we had the Salem witch hunts. And then the witch hunt, you know, you're not purely ideological. We're going to burn you at the stake. And you, they use witch hunts now for, it's a, it's a figure of speech, which means trying to get rid of somebody and expose somebody that isn't an ideological purist. Okay. So if, uh, like Michael Schallenberger, for example, is, <laughs> he is an activist and an environmentalist and a Democrat, liberal, right? But he also wrote a book called Apocalypse Never, which I just finished reading, by the way, which, well, listening to, which I highly recommend for anybody interested in, in the idea of environmentalism and climate change, where he exposes how all of the climate change efforts, all the things to be done, actually create worse problems. They, they create problems that are worse than the ones they're trying to solve. And because he points that out, He's not an ideological purist and he's being, you know, witch hunting and exposed and all this and being kicked out of the good boys club. <laughs> that kind of thing. Inquisitions, like the Spanish Inquisitions, the Catholics going around questioning and torturing and killing people because they don't affirm certain um, propositions. Now, <laughs> if, yeah, you, I'm not as bad as them because we're not killing people and burning them to the stake. We're not putting them on the rack and making them, you know, eat, you know, iron filings. We're not making people do that. But to a lesser degree, you're, you're doing an inquisition that is of a decreased severity, but it's still the same thing in principle. Okay. It's different in degree, not in kind, different in degree, not in principle. So instead of having this ideological purity, I don't need an ideology and I don't need an ideology that to, to which I need to be held, whether or not I'm pure because I'm not going to be held, I'm not going to be beholden to an ideology that is not epistemically warranted in the first place. Okay, so what am I going to do? I want to be in attunement with wisdom. Nick pointed out, uh, Nick from Wednesday nights, and who's been on this channel several times, that uh, if you watch, if you watch the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and I don't want to steal his thunder because he's going to do some really good content on this show. But something he said is that the the woman Esmeralda is a picture. Of, of wisdom and Quasimodo thinks that he can have wisdom like he can have it like like he's going to marry Esmeralda but no wisdom is something that you have an interaction with and the relationship of wisdom is to the savior figure not to him he you can't own wisdom you can dance with it you can you can interact with it you can have it as a friend but you can't own it so wisdom attunement is what I put here for that and cooperative edification to where we're all working together to edify from where we are. So if we, in other words, if I'm in Salem in the, in the late 1600s and there's a witch, I don't burn her at the stake. I have a genuine dialogue with her and find out what is the next rung on her ladder of transformation into being a better person. I work with her to help her find that. I don't, I don't make her <laughs> appeal to some kind of ideology and kick her out and burn her at the stake. Now, I may need to, at some point, if somebody's doing me harm, I may need to defend myself somehow, but that doesn't need to be ideological. So there's some more differences. What else do we have? I copied these, and then I would add each thing, another thing as I would go. So let's talk about fellowship for a second. In You're more familiar with this one. In the Mammon Church... Your fellowship is content-based fellowship. It's content 
dependent fellowship. In other words, I will fellowship with you as long as you're not too far away. I'm, I'm highlighting the Calvinism, provisionism. I, I will fellowship with you as long as you're not too far away from the paradigm to which I subscribe. And that paradigm is built of propositions. And so you will fellowship with people based on how close they are to the propositions that you think are true. You see? They don't really have a relationship with you. They have a relationship with this and they proxy this between you and that and they really have a relationship with this and you were just an overlay and as long as you fit, they will talk to you, but they're not really talking to you. They're talking to the ideology through you. You see? They're not really dealing with you. They don't care about you. Um, so you have content uh, dependent fellowship and, and I might put content-based fellowship or content dependent fellowship, right? And the spectrum of that content operates on, a, on an orthodoxy heresy spectrum. So there's a degree of alignment with the propositions versus misalignment with the propositions. And you have to, you have to line up at least to a certain point in order for them to fellowship with you. And if you go past that point, we're out of fellowship. So not fellowshipping with you, they're fellowshipping with that thing. I think the, the heresy, ortho, like I know the Bible, the word heresy is a Bible word, but it's not used in the Bible as it is used by these clowns. And so I am very against, I think an, an orthodoxy heresy spectrum by which you evaluate people, it's, it's like, uh, it's as bad as racism as far as I'm concerned. It's as bad as sexism as far as I'm concerned. And I know what people believe is an immutable characteristic, but that's not the point. You have just devalued that person and whether or not they're worth connecting to based on their relationship to a set of propositions for which you have no epistemic warranty. And that is so low. It's so low to do that to another human being. Why would you do that? That other human being has some things in their head that can help you and you will have more meaning in your life if you can figure out how to connect with them. Just saying. So down here in the Mammon Church, they have content-based fellowship and content-dependent fellowship. And that's propositional content. And they operate on a, on a propositional spectrum of orthodoxy and heresy. Well, up here in the Logos religion, in the Logos religio, you have orientation-based fellowship. And instead of orthodoxy and heresy, you have what is sacred and what is profane, right? So another, you ever saw Lord of the Rings and you have Fellowship of the Ring? All those people together, they, they're not combined together because they all share a set of beliefs. They're combined together because they have a similar mission. They're all trying to do the same thing. They're all trying to get the ring up to where it can be dropped in the lava and burned and nobody else can use the ring. That's what, They're all trying to do that, right? It's what they're trying to do. Our fellowship is based on us all trying to do this. It's not based on whether or not we affirm this nonsense. It's based on what we're trying to do. So when people say, would, do you think these people are saved or would you fellowship with a Calvinist because you think they're saved? I, I don't really care what 
propositions people affirm. What I'm concerned with is are, are they going to do this with me? Are they going to approach Scripture to transform, to do, be, and become a better version of their future self and agopically aid in the same for others? If they're going to do that, then I will fellowship with them. If they are approaching Scripture <laughs> to arrive at correct propositional doctrinal conclusions with persuasive explanatory power and instilling a high degree of certainty, I am not going to be in fellowship with them. And I don't care what those propositions are. I don't care how similar they are to the propositions that I don't have a problem with. I don't care. That is the wrong thing to do. That is disorientation. That is aiming in the wrong direction. That's not what we're trying to do. So I don't care. I don't care about that. I don't care about, I don't need to have that in my life. Um, and I invite anybody to change their orientation. Not, you know, you can make jokes off that. You know, I'm not asking you to change your sexual orientation or anything like that, but change your orientation away from this propositional nonsense toward becoming more like Christ in love for yourself and for other people. And the last thing I want to add is this, uh, these arrows here. I have these little statements up here, like on the top arrow. Sorry if you can't see that, but that top arrow says appropriateness and expediency. As opposed to what? Down here on the bottom arrow, we have rules and laws. Now you'll really understand, if you've watched the video we did on World War Z, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. But appropriateness and expediency. So how do you determine what you're going to do? In the Mammon Church, they have rules and laws. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish what they're using. Up here in the Logos religion, we have a set of values and we use wisdom and we can determine on the fly whether or not something is appropriate or whether it's expedient. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. Well, how do you know if they're expedient? It depends what you're aimed at. You see? And you have to know what you're aimed at in order to be able to evaluate whether or not something is expedient to get you to what you are aiming at or not. And that can be context-dependent for a short-term goal, or it can be context-dependent for a long-term goal. All right? All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. All things are not expedient. And that is why, that is why Paul says, above all these things, put on charity. He says that in Colossians chapter 3. We just looked at that at the beginning of this video. In Colossians chapter 3, he said above, verse 14, above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And perfectness doesn't mean sinlessness. It's complete maturity. Having, having a right relationship with wisdom, phrenesis and Sophia, for how to operate. So those are the things. Those are the differences. This is the last slide. Those are the differences between the Logos religion, not all of them. This is not exhaustive, okay? But it's, um, uh, hopefully, hopefully it's enough dots to get you to see the picture and some of the difference between Mammon Church, if you're a part of a church, it's probably a Mammon Church, and Logos religion, which is something that you and I have to work together to build from the bottom up from scratch. And I'm inviting you to try to do that with me. That's what we're trying to do here, all right? We want to grow what we're doing here. We want to look at a couple comments real quick. Let's see. Let's see what we can get for our comments, and then we'll wrap up this video. 
uh, no king but Christ. Would you propose that what you've seen and then engage in three other kinds of knowing to explore the veracity of the proposition and then degree to which it's congruent with reality? You would. You would propose. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, if it's congruent with reality and with the reality that you're trying to concress, that, that you are pretending and trying to bring into concrescence, right? That, that you're trying to bring to pass. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Yes. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. That is one of the, the verses we started with when we started our video. Um, Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And if you keep reading that chapter, what you see for all the examples are things that people did. By faith, Noah moved with fear, building, preparing a house, an ark for his family. Iron Man can be like the church... Those the the suit make the man or the man make does the does the suit make the man or does the man make the suit? Does quote a proposition make the man or his ability to discern the current environment and act in wisdom to grow himself and others? I like this. That was a great comment. The the future doesn't exist yet. Open theism, presentism, you can add those to that list of propositions down on those other slides. Calvinist equals puppet. And not just because Calvinism and puppet, but because any any ideologue is a puppet of the ideology. I found open theism when debunking Calvinism. If you went from Calvinism to open theism, you made a lateral move. All right, that's a lateral move, and you are still down here. Okay. If you went from Calvinism to open theism, you're still down here. Uh, just a different set of propositions but not meta-paradigmatic. $150 per hour, good deal. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. if you're a Calvinist and you want to chat with me online or offline, um, it's $150 an hour. <laughs> Imagine for a moment that we lived in a Calvinist theocracy and James White, Jeff Durbin, J. Mack, and J. Peters, and Phil Johnson... Uh, or Grand High Inquisitors. We should delete this comment because we are against nihilism on this channel. Boy, that'd be terrible. <laughs> Charity. Staying with the Iron Man example, Tony has it all. He has it all. Rich, attractive, witty, wealthy. The suit is designed to guard his heart, but he changes and uses it for his needs to his other needs. Uh, this is the goal of Ephesians 4.16. The suit is being in Christ and the power of the Spirit for the unity of Christ. A very, very interesting example. I'd like to um, possibly work to extrapolate that further. I like that, I like that analogy. It's very interesting. Uh, have a meeting, need to go, but need to tell you. Content outstanding, teaching methodology superb. Thank you so much. All right, I appreciate that. Thanks, Roberta. And it was good to see you here while, while it lasted. Arnold's still here. Seems that the Mammon Church, you aren't saved by grace through faith, but through works and mental assent to correct proposition and passing the litmus test. Yeah, they will say you're saved by grace through faith, but in actuality, you're not accepted by the in-group unless you pass the litmus test. Unsaved person watching? Any comments? Yeah, I'd be interested if there's any unsaved people out there watching uh, and have comments. Uh, don't apologize. What do you charge to talk to an open theist? Hmm. I guess, I guess it would probably have to stand for any ideologue. If you're ideologically attached to a certain paradigm and want to have a chat, it'd probably be the same thing. I might give you a, like a five dollar friends and family discount. Take it down to one hundred forty-five per hour. 
So in this video, we talked about this chart. We went step by step. And just to give you a, a quick rendition of what that looks like, it looks like this, okay? And so we added all these things and talked about them individually as we added them. And this slideshow is available on Etsy and the link to get this off Etsy is in the description below. This video is going to be pivotal from here on out in this channel. We're going to refer to Mammon Church and Logos Religion. And this is the video that's going to define those terms. And I would encourage the concept of Mammon Church and Logos Religion to permeate throughout Christianity. And I'm asking you and I to partner together to be in fellowship in trying to do this in all the places where Christians assemble. That's what I'm asking you to do. Thanks for watching. May the Lord bless you and good day.